Market Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity. And if you'd like a free sample copy of that magazine, you can head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to Alistair Begg. Alistair is senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, in the United States of America and the Bible teacher on Truth For Life, which is heard on the radio and online around the world, a huge radio ministry. He was born in Glasgow and ministered in Scotland, graduated from the London School of Theology before moving to America, where he now resides. Alistair, welcome to the programme. Thank you, Sam. How does it feel to be back in London? Always good. Always Always good, good, yeah. Great. Now, you've been over here for um, a conference on Spurgeon, as I understand it. What is the reason for making such a long trip to talk about one of these great figures of Christian history? I had the privilege of um, uh, being the uh, general editor of this Spurgeon Study Bible, which the uh, Lifeway publishers have produced. And in order to... um, set forward their program in the States. They wanted to come here to the to the locale and do essentially some promotional work for mm. it that will be then aired back in America. Oh. So for the last few days, that's what we've been doing. Excellent. So yep. what does a Spurgeon study Bible actually <laughs> entail? What does that look yeah. like? Well, you know, it's quite interesting because when they came to me, I said, how can you have a Spurgeon study Bible? Yeah. I mean, uh, he didn't even cover all the Bible. But they're so committed to the venture that they've been able to make it work. It's... It's uh, very well produced, as you might imagine. It has his specific notes. It's full of illustrations. Some of the, the, the pieces are in his own handwriting and so on. And essentially what it does is something that's never happened before, and that is unearth Spurgeon's material and tie it directly to the text and all in one volume. Wow. And uh, so it hasn't launched yet. It doesn't go, I think, till the 1st of November, but... Um, it's it's in print right now. Excellent. So for those who, who aren't aware, who was Charles Haddon Spurgeon yeah. and why should evangelicals today care yeah. about who, who he was? Yes, yeah, it's a very good question. In fact, I think, I think Americans are far more enamored with him than the average British person is. Um, and even just going around just now, that's become apparent. Um, he was the prince of preachers in the, in the 19th century. He was arguably one of the most famous people in the entire nation. Uh, He preached to thousands of people. He was a very ordinary man from humble origins. I think he was, frankly, caught by surprise by the prominence that he received. He was um, very, very convinced about the sufficiency and authority of the Bible. And so that gave him the the foundation upon which he built. And uh, he really is an interesting character because so much of his material, although sort of Victoriana, um, is very, very contemporary in that he's putting his finger on the pulse of his day in a way that's not actually dissimilar to our own. So he speaks from the past, but I think he speaks with uh, a compelling urgency to 21st century 
Western culture. It is interesting, this production of a, of a Spurgeon study Bible, because, of course, I think both in America and, and in this country, you go in, let's say you walk into the average Christian bookshop, and there are a huge number of Bibles, different translations to begin with, but there are also increasingly <coughs> Bibles tailored, in this case, around a particular figure or for a particular kind of person. What do you think of that as a trend? Is that a healthy thing, that we have so many different sort of types of Bibles for people at various stages in their life or focus on a particular theological slant? Well, I have to... I have to be careful in answering that question because, uh, you know, we realize that Wycliffe Bible Translators, for example, is working very, very hard in all kinds of places in the world to still translate the Mm. scriptures into the languages of people. So from the one perspective, it is an embarrassment almost that we continue to do this. Yet, having said that, um, and I think particularly in Spurgeon's case, This is not a contemporary pastor who has decided that his observations on the Bible are so uniquely wonderful that we really need them. This is actually a pastor who has never asked for this at all. And so he has no liability in it. And the the notion is that although he speaks from an entirely different era, he spoke with such clarity and such usefulness that there is perhaps value in this in a way that may not be true of others. So I, I'm ambivalent on it, quite mm. honestly, Sam. So here on uh, on the profile, we always like to go back to a person's early life and hear about their upbringing, some of their testimony. I understand you were born in Glasgow in the 1950s. So yep. what was it like growing up in Glasgow in the 50s and 60s? Well, you know, in the 50s in Glasgow, and I, I had the privilege of being brought up in a home that was Christian. So I was immediately thrust into that world, um, both evangelical Presbyterianism, Uh, the world of sort of evangelical mission hall life, such as you would find as a result of the work of uh, Moody and Sankey at the end of the previous century. And so I was brought up really in Glasgow in a large interdenominational mission centre that combined, if you like, a sort of evangelical fervency with a social engagement that uh, was in many ways ahead of its time. I I still remember my father being up early on mornings of a Sunday in order to go to this particular establishment, which was near the fish market. It wasn't uh, a really desirable location. But uh, they fed breakfast to 500 or 600 people Mm. who who lived on the streets at that time. And so I I was immediately confronted with this notion of a gospel that changes a life but also impacts a culture. And uh, that I lived, that uh, world I lived in until I was 15, when I, from a Scottish boy's perspective, had the unfortunate um, uh, discovery of life lived in Yorkshire. Once (laughs) I lived in Yorkshire, I realized what a wonderful privilege it was. (laughs) So was Christian faith, I mean, it was obviously around because of your parents. Have you sort of never looked back? It's been quite an easy journey of just something that's already felt natural and, and come easily to you? Well, I... I didn't have to go and look for it, let's put it that way. But there's a huge difference between being kept buoyant on the sort of spiritual uh, framework in which one finds oneself and actually laying hold of these things on a a personal basis. And I I came to that point along the journey of my life in in my early years, ratifying that essentially in my uh, 15, 16-year-old life when as an adolescent you're trying to figure out, am I in this or am I not in this? Mm. Is this true? Uh, How does it relate? And um, so, you know, my Christian life is, in many ways has been a 
is, a, is continues to be a, a series of new beginnings mm. all the time, fresh discoveries of God's grace and new demands as we discover more of the Bible. But it's grounded in, you know, God's amazing goodness to me mm. in actually saving me from stuff that uh, he has saved other people mm. out of. Mm. And um, so I, I look back and, you know, I, I think of the, the, um, the hymn, When All Thy Mercies, O My God, which begins. But it has a, has a verse in it that goes, Unnumbered comforts to my soul, thy tender care bestowed, before my infant heart conceived, from whom those comforts flowed. And that, that really would be the testimony of my life. And then he goes on later to talk about when in the slippery paths of youth, uh, how God's uh, amazing goodness, you know, preserves and protects and urges us on. So I understand when you were you know, very young, your mother passed away aged about 20. That yes. must have had quite a profound effect on you as well. Yes, it did. Not, it had a profound effect on myself and also a profound effect upon me because of the effect it had on both my father and my two younger sisters. My youngest sister was only 11. Uh, the middle child was 15. And so my role in life actually became a little different as a mm. result of that. And again, uh, to to reinforce what I've just said, you know, when you stand at the open graveside of uh, your loved one, particularly your mom who dies in her mid-40s, um, then those questions become very, very pressing. Mm. I mean, you, you are, are we dealing in the realm of conjecture or reality? And again, you know, God has been gracious in that regard. I was with both my sisters in the last week here in the UK, and uh, it's a delight to be able to share the things of the faith with one another, and again, an indication of God's kindness. Mm. And on that point, practically, how would you now pastor someone through something as difficult as that as a death of a loved one at a young age i mean i imagine many christians would say well, i'd like to hope that you know my relative is with god but uh, i don't feel like i can know that for sure and have that level of certainty that i'd like how do you help people through that well you know on a pastoral level um just in terms of interpersonal relationships i think one of the things that we have to guard against is immediately offloading all our favorite verses about mm. uh, um, assurance and everything else, often uh, less spoken and more conveyed by kindness and uh, just by one's presence, is about all that some people can handle at that stage. Uh, the freshness of it all, the hardness of it all, uh, is such that uh, even those who are convinced of these things are not necessarily helped by being reminded of them in a sort of forceful way or hopefully not in a lecturing kind of way. But uh, uh, but when, when the time is right and when the door is open, uh, again, to speak of a God who is not a God who um, is on a deck chair, but a God who has manifested himself on a cross, one who has entered into suffering, someone who is not removed from these things. And, and, and to remind oneself that God, as he's made himself known, is is too kind to be cruel. He, he's too wise to actually make mistakes. And, and also that the providences of God are seldom self-interpreting, that to try and make sense of these things in the immediacy is, is seldom a good exercise. And often we will be wrong because many of the answers will never actually be ours. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, even to today, you know, I often say now with my grandchildren, 
Now, why would it be that I didn't have my mom here to enjoy this great moment? That's a long time has elapsed. And so, but that is part and parcel of the of our earthly pilgrimage. When did you first feel called to be a pastor? Mm. Well, I didn't ever want to be a pastor. <laughs> um, I, I was very reluctant in, even at the point of preparing myself to, with the thought of serving God, you know, that uh, somehow or another all the things that I'd regarded as of primary importance to me may actually not be uh, what is in store for me. Mm. But I thought then when I went off to study um, theology that, you know, I could at least preserve my um, status amongst all my non-Christian friends by, you know, being in sports ministry or music ministry or, you know, something along those lines. And I did a lot of stuff with uh, young people when I was a student, discovering that I didn't really enjoy the Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening when I left them all behind. I would go, you know, to Bournemouth to a church mm. and um, and meet these young people, do the talks and everything, and then get in a car and drive back to London. And I said to somebody one day, I said, you know, I don't really like this. And the man who was one of our senior tutors overhearing me, leant forward and said, I can tell you why that is. I, because I said, I don't like leaving them behind. He said, that is because God has given you a pastor's heart. Mm. That you don't have the capacity just to engage and walk away. Mm. And that was both like a, a doorway opening and like a large sword hanging over my head. Mm -hmm. Because it was the one thing I thought I must never do or wouldn't do. And from there, as a youngster, I mean, I was only 23, uh, in 1975, opportunities for ministry, especially within the context of uh, either, you know, the free church, mm. non-Anglican. Yeah. There were very, very few opportunities for assistance and everything. People forget that. I had the immense privilege of being given the opportunity to go to Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh and mm. to be the assistant to Derek Prime. Yeah. And from there, actually, I've never, I've never looked back. I've never applied for a job mm. in ministry. God has really ordered my steps. Wow. Uh, what was Scotland like during that time? Because I know nowadays, um, even just recent surveys have come out uh, specifically about religion in Scotland. Many people will say the statistics are very bleak and it seems like there's a lot of secularism in, in Scotland. Well, there is in England, of course, as well. But it does seem like Scotland is often nowadays singled out for some fairly worrying concerns amongst Christians. Was it like that when, when you were there? No, I don't think it was. I mean, I was still, you know, if you think about it, we are on the... Well, not on the tail end of the charismatic movement, but there's a great resurgence. The uh, the marches in London uh, with Arthur Blessed right, in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, Blessed came to Edinburgh, you know, with his cross up the main street. We were still doing outreaches right in the main centres of of Edinburgh, both midweek in the middle of the festival, in the bandstand, mm. holding big events, and that wasn't uh, responded to by the kind of indifference that is represented today. Right. But I think I think I probably was there at the tail end of that period. And there is no doubt that, you know, you get in a in a taxi or on a bus in Glasgow and talk to a millennial and it's pretty unusual if they have really any knowledge at all of the Bible, church or Jesus. Mm. That said, the churches that are actually teaching the Bible that are engaged then they are seeing a tremendous interest on the part of people. Mm. Those who have essentially abandoned any kind of gospel 
uh, have pretty well been understandably abandoned by the culture. I'd love to come back and talk about those sorts of issues in more detail, but sticking with your story for now, what made you move from Scotland to America? Hmm. Well, I say to people, you know, a church in America found out about me because someone gave him my name. He gave him my name as a bit of a joke, and they never got the joke. You know, they took it seriously. And um, that was really essentially it. Really? I, somebody, somebody mentioned the, their need of uh, someone to serve in the church. The person said, well, I have a name for you, but you'd have to go a long way to find this person. And that began a fairly long saga that would be too long to explain. But I, I went there... Uh, reluctantly, I have to say. I went there obediently. Um, they asked me once. I declined their invitation. I didn't want to leave Scotland. And when the, answer, when the invitation came a second time, it was a bit like, you know, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, mm. saying, go to Nineveh. And uh, so we went. Mm. And, you know, uh, tomorrow when I uh, fly home, it will be 34 years to the day when we actually flew out of Scotland to go and make our home in the United States. Mm. And that has been my place ever since. Mm. And so is the US now home? Well, it is and it isn't. My children are there. My grandchildren are there. Obviously, my wife's there. 34 years of relationships are now there. So, you know, I've lived longer in America than I've lived in Mm. the UK. But you haven't lost the accent. Well, it's there and it's not (laughs) there. It comes and it goes, you know. But... uh, uh, yeah, you know, when I went at first, I, I used to say to Sue, my wife, I used to say, you know, if anything happens to me, I don't want to, I, I don't 